Hello, and welcome to Sobercast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, everyone. My name is Dan, and I'm a recovered alcoholic. Only through the grace of God and with the help of hundreds of people in rooms like this, people very much like yourselves, can I make that kind of a statement. Uh, before I say anything, I have a real good piece of news that is kind of an announcement. I didn't want to make it sitting there at the table. Let me have just a moment to tell you. There's an organization uh, known as ALMAC, ALMACA. It's an organization of um, people who work in the industry with uh, the disease of alcoholism in the personnel. And they're having a conference in this, a Western regional conference in this city this week. And on Wednesday night over at the Hilton Hotel in Sunnyvale, there is to be an open AA meeting. And there is a good friend of mine, and if you have ever read, I should put it this way, there is a good friend of any of us who ever read page 439 in the big book will be the speaker at that uh, meeting. We tried to get him to San Jose for years. It's been impossible, but he is here for this conference. It is impossible because of the size of that hall to open it up to AA. But because of the man who is uh, been in charge of putting this thing on, happens to be a friend of mine and friend of some of the people in this group, he told me that I could make this announcement tonight. And though you're not to bring everybody you know in San Jose, uh, if you get there early, there'll probably be a seat for you. How many of you people were in the meeting at this place? I think it was the first time you had a speaker when you were just getting started, and I happened to be the speaker. God love you. Thank you. I can't believe it, but thank you. (laughs) There's real love in this fellowship. Uh, I was invited to be a speaker here, and I was real pleased about it. Uh, I like to hear myself. I'm really surprised sometimes at the things I hear. Uh, anyway, that night, as I so often do, I got carried away with the things I was hearing and saying, and I only got to the finish of the 11th step. And it was something like midnight, and they were wanting to turn out the lights, and we all at home. I promised them if they'd ever invite me back that we might talk about the 12th step. Now, I'm not promising you that that's what we're going to do tonight, but we're going to start now and head that way, and maybe we'll get there. Uh, if we do, uh, Maybe we can have even some discussion about it. Uh, but I make no problem. My story is a horror story, and that's why I wanted to know how many people who were here that had heard it, that had come back and listened to it again. I marvel at it. Uh, there's some other friends of mine here who have heard it and are back, and it blows my mind. But anyway, uh, I cannot tell you what I found or how I found it until I tell you who and what I was. That may not be important to you, but it is to me, so please uh, bear with me. Really, outside of those six people who uh, identified themselves as being in the first 30 days of, of sobriety, the rest of you really could all go take a walk for 30 or 40 minutes, because anything I've got to say is really uh, for them, and I'm sure you've heard it all many times. But I'm here primarily tonight because I was hoped there would be five or six people as there were, because... Uh, 
Though I drank at a different time and place than they did, I think that perhaps there are some similarities that we can share with one another that perhaps will help both others. If it doesn't help them, I know it will with, with me. I was first introduced to alcohol uh, by my father and couldn't stand the taste of it and spit it out. But I was pretty young. When I got to the ripe old age of about 15 and my family was out of town and I was there in that house alone and had some of the fellows from high school over and we were being, you know, big, grown up and all that stuff. We got down into the basement where the casks of wine that he was making was. And I tasted it and I didn't spit it out. And from that day to this, alcohol was in control of me any time I put it in here. I never ever had enough. I never knew it as a beverage. All of my drinking was not misery. Some of the places I drank it, I enjoyed the music that the cute device made in the glasses blended with the giggling and laughing and uh, the other things I heard. I enjoyed some of the pretty people uh, that drank and controlled it that I was around. I enjoyed some of that, but I never ever controlled drinking. I never ever had enough, and it was in full control from the very beginning, and I was an alcoholic out of the shoes. One of the things I want to share with you is uh, that this was in the enlightened age of the 20th century in probably the most advanced and enlightened civilization this world has ever known. And yet it was the dark ages for anyone like me. There was not a word alcoholism. The concept of what I was being, having a disease or being sick was unheard of. There was no such thing as detox, and there wasn't a bed in a hospital of any kind or anyone who would get in the condition that I would get into. You could not buy a bed. There was not a charity bed in a state, a county, a city, or a federal hospital. And almost from the beginning, I was in trouble and looking for help. Medicine saw it as a moral problem, and that wasn't the business they were in. Besides, alcoholics don't make very good patients. We didn't have no days. You threw up in waiting rooms, and you uh, didn't keep appointments, and you didn't pay bills, and they just didn't want to have anything to do with you. Psychiatry didn't deal with failures, and they saw the kind of a person I was as a failure. And religion told me I was a sinner, and uh, I get my moral code in order, I wouldn't have the problem. And that didn't leave very many other places to turn to. However, I was directed to so. I sometimes sobered up on the concrete floor of a jail, digging in with my fingernails trying to hang on to stay on this planet. Now it was not because I didn't have a loving family. It was not because they did not have the means to try to help me. And it was not because there was any lack on my part to try to do something for myself. There just wasn't anything to do. And in 20 years of trying to find out what was the matter with me, never at any time did anyone ever suggest to me that I shouldn't drink. Never. The nearest thing I ever heard to that was some very profound pronouncements 
by some psychiatrist and said, I drank too much. And my God, nobody knew that better than I. I grew up with one of my best friends in grade school and through high school who watched me oftentimes have to hide whiskey on the school grounds to make it through the day. He was able to, he lived a normal life, went on to his college education, completed it, became the doctor that he studied to be, and I hounded this man. And there wasn't anything he wouldn't have done for me if he could have. And I made his life damn miserable, believe me, because I wanted help. One time, during a very serious time in my drinking, when I was back in touch with him, he said, Dan, I sometimes I believe what you tell me about not meaning to do the terrible things you're doing to yourself. And he said there was a new drug came on the market about the year of the time I was taking my final exam. And I thought a good deal about it. He said, I, you know how hard I was working? I made it through, I think, with the help of this drug. And I'm going to give them to you, and I believe that when you feel like you absolutely have to have a drink, instead, if you'll take one of these, I think you'll find that it'll do for you what you need, and uh, maybe you won't have this terrible problem. You know, he was right. It did real fine things for me. And it, you know, I was not a dummy, as sick as I was and as crazy as I was, and it didn't take me any time to learn that two did four times as much good as one. <laughs> and then I learned how to put the zinger to it. If you wash it down with a drink, wow. That was my introduction to amphetamines. I've gained Benzidu. And you know I was addicted to the first one I took. Absolutely. And it was no time at all till I was carrying them loose in my pocket. And if you think I wasn't crazy before then, and I was, then I really was. A few years later, again, with the help of this man, I was introduced to a doctor who ran a hospital. It was not called that. In those days, it was called an insane asylum. That was the beautiful word they had, and it was for crazy people. And this man listened to my story and my ideas, and only to humor the doctor who had brought me there, put me through the psychiatric tests, and told me there wasn't anything the matter with me, except that I drank too much and to go home. And I had been trying to find somebody like this for years, and I wouldn't go home, and I wouldn't quit talking. And I was a pretty persuasive fellow, as sick as I was. the very worst year of the Depression. You've all heard there was a time we had what was called a Depression. 25% of the people who wanted to work were without a job, and I had 14 jobs that year. 14. Got fired from every damn one of them, one of them three times. <laughs> I was a persuasive fellow. I persuaded this man, and he permitted me to commit myself to this insane Adada, a self-committal for 90 days. And there he found that I was sicker than they thought I had been of my test. And there they introduced me to another new wonder drug that had just come on the market. And this was going to save my life and restore my family. It came in liquid form. It was red and thick and syrupy and looked like a red cough syrup. And God, it sunk and pushed with terror. It did wonder. Yeah. I can smell it and taste it. It did wonderful things. But it was so all god awful to taste. It was called sodium barbital. Barbiturate. The end of 90 days, I left this place 
with an open prescription and a goodly supply. And I found if you took a fifth of whiskey and poured about three big shots down, there was then room to pour the terrible medicine into the wonderful medicine. And then if you popped a couple of the little fingers and worked it down. <laughs> now I told you this was another time and place. I had rocket fuel before they had rockets. <laughs> and I was a self-propelled rocket with no control. Reality was right here. And I saw it every time, both on the way up and on the way down. <laughs> and I spent years trying to get that son of a bitch shop where I wanted and never did. Now, if you have heard that a life run on the energy of self-will will not fly, you should have seen where the energy I had or what I was like. I'm going to try to shorten this up. But I want to tell you that in this terrible condition, I found no help. They did have in those days places they called sanitarium. Any of you who have read the Dr. Silkworth or Bell story in this beautiful book was kind of what I'm talking about. It was a place they had primarily or drug addicts, people who took too many of their own prescriptions, and generally that was the people that were in those places. When I would get so bad that I would end up in a street jacket, those were the kind of places I would wake up in. And then they got to where they wouldn't take me. And one Sunday morning on a big wide boulevard in Kansas City, Missouri, some people driving to work passed some kind of a thing that looked like a man that was running down the middle of this big wide boulevard. And they thought they should stop and investigate. And they did. And he was in terrible horror, experiencing terrible delirium treatment. And they were able to gather him up because they recognized him. And they put him in their car, and they took him to what they thought was his home. It hadn't been for two years. And delivered him to what they thought was his wife, and she hadn't been for two years. And he wasn't too hard to handle for those two big fellows. He only weighed 114 pounds. And that was this man that's standing here talking to you tonight. And she tried to find, out of the compassion and love in her heart, a place for me. And they would no longer take me. But they told her about a doctor who lived over in Kansas City, Kansas, who had been a good deal, they said, like she was describing me, and who had found a way to do something about it, both for himself and for other people. And they thought if she could find him, though they didn't think he was any longer permitted to practice medicine, they thought if she could find him, that perhaps he could be of some help. She tried, and she did, and I was delivered to an old gabled house on a hill in Kansas City, Kansas. It had been once the home of one of the leading dentists in that town. And when he built a new home, moved away from it, he just left it there. He didn't want anybody else to live in it. And when this doctor who were going around gathering up drunks with the help of a guy from the Salvation Army, gathering up drunks off of bar stools and trying to get them sober because it's something he'd learned by an organization called Alcoholics Anonymous. And he opened up a little place in an abandoned storeroom down in the Skid Row area of the town. 
he had a certain amount of success sobering up these drunks. And this dentist, when this doctor got a conditional license to practice medicine again, made this house available to him. They sold it to this organization. I believe the contract read $100 down and whatever you can pay a month. That place you will not read about in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is contrary to every tradition in AA, but it is still in existence today in Kansas City, Kansas. It's called Mission on the Hill. And it has detoxed and sobered up more drunks than maybe any place in the world today. I was delivered to that place. They charged. They took people in. They had torn all the partitions out of the second floor and had eight army cots up there. And they sobered up people who couldn't get sober any other way, who said they wanted to get sober and try to stay sober. They sobered you once. They couldn't take you twice because they always had a waiting list. They charged for it. Any of you who have gone through any treatment centers lately would be interested in this. It was a five-day detox and it cost $15. If you didn't have the money, perhaps there was somebody there who was watching the interview of you who decided they that you were sincere enough and they would sponsor you and they paid the $15. And if you didn't have it and nobody offered to and they thought you really meant it, they took you anyway. And that's how I got a bed. I had my worldly possessions in a little brown paper sack. I had drunk up my family. I had drunk up a marriage. I had drunk up so many jobs that I can't possibly tell you. I had drunk up three businesses of my own. And I had my worldly possessions in a little brown paper sack that consisted of a toothpaste and a toothbrush, perhaps a clean pair of socks, and I had a pair of slacks hanging on a coat hanger in the restroom of one of my favorite bars. And that was my worldly possession. The palms of my hands and the soles of my feet were raw. I weighed 114 pounds, and I was, had four addictions. Primarily the addiction to the narcotic alcohol. That's all I told them about, and they took me upstairs and detoxed me. On the first floor, they had meeting rooms. Beautiful old kitchen where the coffee pot and the coffee was always made. Incidentally, they threw away the key to that house the day they opened it, and it has never been closed or locked since it opened. It opened 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a home for the people who say uh, that they hope their sanity will be restored and is run by the inmates. The people who cared for me on that second floor took me through my delirium treatments were people who only 30, 60, 90 days before got sober the same way. And they would come back and give a night of their life once a week or once a month or how often they could so that other people could have a chance at sobriety. The meetings were held downstairs on the first floor. Lots of them. Two a week. The walls were lined with slot machines. You had to be a member of this organization to play. And anybody was a member that said they were. If you were sober 90 days, went to one meeting a week, you were a voting stockholder in a in corporation that was Alcoholics Anonymous of Kansas City, Kansas Incorporated. And they had a big sign out in front that said AA. You see why you won't read much about this in the history of alcoholism. <laughs> I don't advocate it for any place else in the world, but it worked, and perhaps the only place that I could have gotten an opportunity at sobriety. I was downstairs to my first meeting. 
I was two days without anything, and I mean anything. And I'm in the furthest corner, with my back into that corner, sitting in a chair, trying to listen to somebody up here talking. And the man who was on duty that night, who was serving the detox, and the detox was an ounce and a half of the worst and cheapest whiskey they could buy in a full jelly glass of water. This little boy comes saddling up to me back in the corner and handed it to me and said, here. And I said, no, I'm off of that. I haven't had any for two days. He said, Doc says you're on it and to drink it. And I looked over here at this founder of this group, and he was nodding. This man was recognizing that I was going back into my drug delirium treatment, and I wasn't even aware of it. Something happened that night. I don't know how. All I can tell you is that something happened that night. I somehow knew there wasn't anybody there that could tell me who had experienced this. And I didn't have this knowledge. But I somehow knew that I would never be sober and free and happy if I had seen those people around there be unless I was free of all of my addiction. And I leveled with those people that night and told them the truth. That doctor told me, Dan, I have no idea what will happen if we do to you for these other things what we've done for the booze. I've never done it. I haven't anything to give you. I haven't anything to go on. You may not live. You may come out of it a gibbering idiot. I have no way to know. I knew what I wanted. I had to take the risk, whatever it was. And I can't tell you how it happened. I don't think anybody can explain to you. But that doctor who was operating on only a provincial license to practice medicine, the man who turned out to be my sponsor, the administrator of the largest hospital in Kansas City, Kansas, the Methodist Hospital, and I, the four of us, went into a room on the fourth floor of that hospital, and two of them left and two of them stayed, the man that later was my sponsor and I, and no one else knew I was in that hospital. I was not admitted. And the things that happened there the next 96 hours should not happen to any of God's creatures. It's a horror story, and I'm not going to take you through it tonight. If you want to know more about it, see me after the meeting. And that man stayed there with me through that. And when it was all over, a gurney was brought in the room, and I was taken down to the emergency ward and admitted to that hospital. And then was able to have oxygen and the intravenous feedings and things that I needed and was there for two more weeks. And then went back out and lived at this detox center for over a month. And 19 months later, living at home and trying to get back over to this place each day on the streetcar because I could not yet drive an automobile. I would sometimes get downtown where I had to transfer. And I would have to call my mother and ask her, was I on my way over or on my way back? And I despaired that I was going to get any better. And they suggested to me that maybe it was only through a loving God that I'd gotten as well as I had. And let's let him determine how well I would get. One time, many times after that, I have had people remark about seemingly my photographic memory. That's a long way to go. I don't have it anymore. But I had it when I needed it. That's this horror story. And I want to tell anybody that's in this room tonight, particularly those six people who introduced themselves, in this day and age, very few people ever reached this fellowship without having known something addictive, mood-altering besides alcohol. Now here we deal 
only with your addiction to alcohol. But whatever it was that told me that night, it's so. You will never be free until you're free of all your addictions. And if you want to talk about it to someone who knows, see me after the meeting, and I've got as long as you have, and we'll talk as much as you want to. The man who has clinically treated more alcoholics today, the man alive today, a man with the name of Dr. Persh. You may not recognize his name, but if I told you he's the man that established the program in the Naval, the U.S. Navy, and ran the hospital in Long Beach, where many of people went who got lots of publicity, maybe you'll know who I'm talking about. This man says that he is convinced without a shadow of a doubt that once an alcoholic is addicted to any mood-altering drug, he's addicted to every mood-altering drug. It only has to be introduced into the body. And I proved that 35 years ago. They're learning. <laughs> See, when I was going to the medical profession for help, if they missed two hours of lecture, they never heard anything about people having trouble with alcohol. If they didn't buy an extra book in their, in their psychiatry education, they never heard of it, much less the lecture. It isn't that way today. Praise God. When I got to that place where they detoxed me, for the first time I heard the concept of the word alcoholism and me, an alcoholic, and a disease. I had never heard it before. And then they laid this one on me. They said, it's an incurable disease. And I wondered why I hadn't committed suicide all those times I'd tried. But then they said, it's a disease from which you can recover. An incurable disease. And they introduced me to this book. This beautiful book. Doesn't look like any of those you see there. This one's been a lot of miles. But this beautiful book, and they showed me, it wasn't even this one, it was much smaller. They showed me the first paragraph in the preface to that book. And it said the purpose of this book is to tell you people how a group of helpless, hopeless alcoholics have recovered. Now I heard that. They told me I had an incurable disease for which there was no cure known. But then they told me they had written the book about how they had recovered. And they showed me that the first chapter in this book was about the solution to the problem, not the problem. They showed me that there was a solution before they talked to me about my problem. And as you heard read here, no, we didn't read it, and I did read it, chapter 5. They told me that it would probably be necessary for me to take certain steps, 1 through 12. They showed me the second step of that program. They didn't have much trouble with me about the first step. This guy I just described to you, he was sick, <laughs> and his manageable life was a little out of control. The second step of that program, they told me, was a promise. That there was a power greater than myself that could restore me to sanity. A promise. 
And so I want to tell you six people who are here tonight, if you haven't already heard it, look out for these, these people. They're tricky. They'll really lay it on you. They'll set you all up that way as they did me and talk about a power greater than yourself. And just when you get comfortable with that, then they'll tell you about a power greater than yourself called God. <laughs> and all you have to do is be willing to turn your will and your life, this wonderful life I had. <laughs> and you know, I had to take about three months to consider that. <laughs> there was one thing, one thing those people did for me, and I, I want to share this with you six. It was the first time in my life anybody had ever talked to me about a terrible person I was and all the terrible things I did in preaching. They didn't tell me, and what you have to do, you have got to. They didn't do that. And if anybody ever in this organization tells you what you have to do, you turn on your heel and walk away from them because they're really not a good member. What they will do is tell you what they've done and show you what they've done and let you have any part of it you want. Such as the things you hear in this meeting tonight. I'm going to try to tell to you about just the things that are in this book. That's what I know. See? That's what I'm going to try to do. And you're welcome to take any part of it with you and leave all the rest of it here. So don't let anyone give you the idea that, that you have to do anything. And they're going to tell you what it is. And now that I've told you that, let me tell you what you must do. You must come to meetings like this and other meetings that there are to be had. And you must not take a drink between meetings. And I doubt if you'll see anybody take a drink at a meeting. And since I've told you as much as I have about this Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, let me give it all to you. Really what it is, is a concealed pyramid where they sell books. That's really what they've got you here for. They're going to try to sell you books. They've got them all up here. They already told you, see? And when they get you hooked on this one, then they've got a whole bunch more for you. But get this one. Turn them down on all the others if you want to. But get this one. You must get a book. Now, if you can't afford it, they tell me they have a very simple and easy payment plan if you forgot to bring your credit card with you. If it's embarrassing to you to have to charge it and pay for it, when there's anybody look and steal it. <laughs> and if that goes against your brain and you can't, See me after the meeting. I know somebody that will steal it for you. <laughs> but get a book! <laughs> when all else fails, read the directions. And here are the directions. They're right here. And then when you get a book, get a sponsor. Because they're pretty heavy. <laughs> Two and three syllable. Very short sentences in this book. And you may need some help with the interpretation of it. Get a sponsor. If for no other reason, get a sponsor and taking the meetings. He probably needs it. <laughs> Don't drink between meetings. Get a book and get a sponsor. And you've got a chance to get well. You have a chance to do what they promised here. From an incurable disease, you, if you, like me, are a helpless, hopeless alcoholic and find a way to recover. The way I recovered was after that long study, I made a decision to turn my will and my life 
over to the care of a higher power that they called God. Now, I had been born and raised in a good Christian home. Made to go to church. Sent to church school. The whole bit, the older boy, the whole thing. About four years of age, I was visiting a dear old Irish grandmother. Beautiful lady. And I apparently had given her a very bad time that day because when it came time to go to bed, she suggested that when I said my prayers, <laughs> that maybe I should try to look at what happened that day. In a few minutes, she came into my room to see if I followed her directions and I was in bed and half asleep. And she said, Dan, did you say your prayers? And I said, I'm saying them. She said, I suggest you get out here with me and let's get down on our knees beside the bed and say them. She said, it made no difference what condition your grandfather ever came home in. He never went to bed without making peace with his God, and he was a happy man. Probably as good an advice as I could ever or ever did receive in my life. A year or two later than that, I got some more real good advice from my mother. Another beautiful lady, the daughter of this woman who had just, I just shared with you. She told me I lived in the great, latest, greatest and freest society ever known in the history of man. I would be limited only to the ultimate of my potential by the amount of effort I was willing to make. Those were real truths. If I could have taken those things and not had other things happen, I think I could have lived a very successful life. But they sent me to school and they sent me to church. And I learned that what those two beautiful ladies had told me was not true. Because there was a threatening, punishing God that was out to get you and he got me. And he was responsible for every bad thing that had ever happened to me in my life. And they wanted me now to turn this uncontrollable life over to him. <clears throat> and this man that was telling me about it was telling me about this loving God. I didn't know anything about this loving God. And he said, if you don't have one, I'll loan you mine. That's what happened. He loaned me his. And I operated on a God I borrowed a loving God. In the fourth and fifth steps of this program, I found for the first time truly and exactly who this person was. Only because I had to begin to have a concept of a loving God. And under the protection and umbrella of that first step, could I dare to look at this. And in that fifth step, I saw for the first time in clarity, I took all of those little pieces and put them together, and there was a picture staring back at me, me. And I didn't like what I saw, and I didn't want to be that. And my sponsor explained to me, that's why they put the sixth step right after the fifth. You don't have to be. And again, it was dependent upon a loving God. Get about the business of cleaning up your side of the street, he said, to get your house in order. That's what we tried to do in the eighth and ninth step. Now, I'd spent a lot of time making a hell of a mess out of things. And it took quite a while. And I started making my list. And I had two lists. I had the ones I was ready to make the events to, and I had the ones over here that, no, these sons of bitches are going to have to wait a while. <laughs> I kept wanting to start on this list, and he said, no, we can't till this list gets over to this list. And finally, they did. I don't think it did a thing for any of those people, but the things it did for me were unbelievable. I went out and made a mention of all these people, and it was all two and four of me. 
And then they said to me, in this beautiful book, if what you have done has been built on a sound foundation and you have been honest and precise and sincere about it, you now are ready to pass through the most beautiful words in this whole book, this triumphant arch of freedom. They told me the promise of that second step had been kept. And they said, now that your sanity has been restored, we no longer fight anybody or anything, including Boo. And then they gave me three steps in order to maintain it. Now, if there's anybody here whose posterior cannot endure any more of this, get up and move around. It's all right with me. You already see uh, that we probably aren't uh, going to get to any kind of a discussion. Because I still got to tell you about the 12th step. <laughs> At least you were warned. But you see, when I came to that 11th step, they told me that there was an opportunity for me to improve my conscious contact with this loving God through prayer and meditation. And that I could, uh, in so doing, maintain this recovery IID experience. And they said to me in the 12th step, and God, we got there. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, and so forth. Carry this message to alcoholics and practice these principles in all our affairs. To you six people, you perhaps wonder, as I did when I read those steps, exactly what do they mean by a spiritual awakening. And you'll get as many answers as you'll ask people. And for each one of them, it's exactly what they needed. In hindsight, I can tell you this. The spiritual awakening for me was coming to know, understand, and love a loving God. Then coming to know, understand, and love myself. Which brought me to the great part. Coming then to know, understand, and love my brothers and sisters. For me, that's a spiritual awakening. Nowhere in this book did it tell me that that's what would happen. Only in hindsight do I know that's what happened. That wasn't the goal I had. I came here to get sober and stay sober. And they taught me how to do that. And it's the least I got. The least. What I really got here was freedom. How to live happy joyous and free. All the while, that's what this loving God had intended for me. And I had taken that and all the tools that he had given me and mucked it up and was the kind of a person I described to you. That's why I had to tell you who it was that got here. Now what did I find when I found this God that I could know, understand, and love? I want to take a couple of minutes to share that with you. This is only me. We're not no longer talking about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It doesn't describe this God in there. It just describes a loving God. 
but I was terribly confused, and I didn't know what I was looking for. And if there's any one of the six of you who are in that predicament tonight, let me tell you what come out the other end of the horn. I found a God that is good. Now, that's not too profound, is it? The unchanging principle of good, the God I found. I found a God without any limitation. Limited. A God that was good and was without limitation. I found a God that was infinite. Life. Intellect. Truth. I found a God that was indescribable beautiful. Beauty. I found a God that was spirit. Spirit. For me, that makes possible that my God that I found is everywhere, including a secret place in me. Are you ready for this one? I found a God that was unconditional love for me. Now, a God that was all of these things, I found that it was absolutely impossible for me to believe that I was a biological accident. That I had just washed up on the beach someplace or crawled out from under a rock. Absolutely impossible. I found that I had a father that I know as God, who created me, and in so doing gave me full control and responsibility for every part of my being. I found a God that had created me, not as excess, not for a football to kick around, but because he loved me. Because he had a purpose and a reason. And that blew my mind. Because for the first time I saw that there was purpose and reason in my being here. A God that was good without limitation was able to create me the way he wanted me to be. I couldn't make mistakes if I hadn't been created able to make mistakes. So that didn't make me unacceptable to the God, the Father that had created me. So then I begin to understand what I had found in that fifth step. That my loving God had forgiven me the things I did that I couldn't forgive me for before I ever did them. That's a pretty comfortable feeling. I like living with If I'm wrong, don't tell me. I found that for me to feel that way for me to continue with that recovery that I had to practice that suggestion of the 11th step continued to prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with this loving God and I find that in that 
It's where it tells me that I pray only for knowledge and power. And under that concept, they're both one and the same thing. And I find when I'm in tune, when I'm improving my conscious contact with my loving God, which I call being in attunement, in tune, that that power I pray for does come into me. It makes my life full of joy. And my soul, my secret place, full of peace. I find that that power that I receive in my attunement with my loving God is the energy, the vitality, the very life that flows through me. I find that when I'm in tune with my God, that energy also flows through my mind. It's a light. It's a light that is so bright that it lights up the darkest corners of that tricky mind. And there are no dark places. There are no doubts. There are no neuroses. There are no fears. And I am free. Happy, joyous, and free. I find when I'm in tune with my God, my road of destiny is straight and smooth and sober. And I find when I'm in tune with my God, that inexhaustible supply of unconditional love is available to me. The only way that I can keep that I found, other than with my attunement with God, is to share it with my brothers and sisters. My family are the people in this beautiful fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I found that fellowship in October of 1947. I was 35 years of age, and at least half of the people in that group said anybody that still had their own teeth and a hawkable watch couldn't possibly be ready to stop drinking. <laughs> and I had a life, 35 years, 20 of them, that I described to you. The last 10 of that 35 are chronic alcoholic. And this beautiful, loving God. On October of last year, let me start my third life. I had 35 years when I got here. I had 35 years last October, and I'm starting on my next 35. Thank you, but the applause is for you, because you make it possible. You see, if I can bring some of this unconditional love that I have found and send it out here to you, every one of you that accepts it and sends it back to me, you see who walks out of here with the most, don't you? And that's the kind of a guy I always was. And, and I want to tell you six people that anything that was possible for me 
is possible for you. And if I have anything you'd like to have, it's yours. You can have it the same way I got it. And I found I was limited by only one thing. That beautiful mother, that root, she was right. I'm limited by only one thing. And your return will be limited only on one thing. The strength of our faith. And my faith is coming to places like this and seeing what's happened here since this place was started. My faith is to have the opportunity to get here as I did tonight before the meeting started and meet you people who haven't even lived as long yet as I've been sober. My faith is to see all the women in these meetings. They were damn hard to find when I got here. <laughs> you had to claw and fight and have a skin of an alligator to stay. And if you have nothing more than I, the faith of the size of a mustard seed, that's all you need. Don't take a drink between meetings. Get a book. Get a sponsor. Borrow his loving God. And then it's all between you and he. One thing I'd like to close with. I hope that every one of you one day will know the joy of having watching someone's life make a 180 degree turn. Go from a helpless, hopeless, sick alcoholic to a recovered. It's a thrill. It's a joy. It's a high like you can't believe. And all you have to do is get it and give it away. God bless you, and I'm sorry we didn't have a discussion. <laughs> if I'd have known that, we'd have gone on a lot further. What would you like to do? Would you like to... Uh, have an open discussion on the 12 steps. Would you like to ask questions? Hmm? What would you like? Chris, would you like? Yeah. Hi, Chris. In the third step. Ah, all right. I get the question now. It uh, was probably about my 24th month, but that does not need to be the way for you. You see, at 19 months, I couldn't get from home to the meeting. <laughs> the people who got sober at the time and place I did, and I believe can do it now, can, can go through the, the first nine steps of this program as fast as they are willing to make the effort. My God, there is nothing, you know, find a loving God and let him do it. That's all I'm about to do. Yeah. Somebody else have a question? Yeah. Say it again. Dry drunk. Am I familiar with it? I thought I invented it. Yes, sir. <laughs>
If you have a big book. If you, yeah. When I go to schools or when I go to play, you know, and talk to these, ha ha, always want to talk about my uncle or the guy down the street. So if you've got an uncle or somebody down the street that has dry drunk, it has been my experience that whenever I was out of touch with this loving God. You see, I found in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that if I could recover, and I think this is the most misquoted part of that book, and it's misquoted everything it is, the most was if I could recover spiritually, then I might recover physically and emotionally. So whenever there's anything wrong with me on my spiritual health, anything could happen and generally a dry drug deal. So today, if I did not have my daily attunement, I would surely be liable for a dry drunk. When I was operating under the umbrella and protection of that third step, anytime I took it back, I was on dry drunk. Boom, one, one followed the other. Because it is my belief, my experience with me and my experience with the few people I have worked with, that under the umbrella, under the protection of that third step, it would be utterly, absolutely impossible for anybody to take a drink. Or have anything else bad happen to them under the protection of because that's a God with unconditional love and without limitation. Any other questions? Yes? Hi, Chuck. I took this along with me in case I should have, you know, another 24 hours. Uh, just before Christmas last year, I was in my 36th year of sobriety. And I dreamed one night, I was trying to explain to a group like this, how in the hell it happened that I had gotten drunk. <laughs> drunk dreams were a of my boy, I had a bad idea. You see, I come to know that my subconscious mind is absolutely sterile. It doesn't know right from wrong or truth from error. And that's all that's operating in a dream. <laughs> Old time, huh? Okay. Uh-uh. Anyone up? Yes, please. Uh-huh. Pat, brace yourself. Here we go again. My father died a drinking alcoholic. My mother died a drinking alcoholic. I have two sisters, one alive and one that died a drinking alcoholic. I have a brother-in-law to the sister that's still alive that was as close to me as a brother ever could have been who died a drinking alcoholic. I won't go any further, but I can go back in the family. The grandfather who <laughs> never died, never went to bed without getting on his knees, no matter who brought him home or in what condition. See? I had some alcoholism in this family, and I tried in my way very hard to help every one of them. No, only by example. And for God's sake, stay the hell out of it otherwise. Let someone who isn't so close. That's been my experience. But there, the, the, you can do more than anything else by just the experience you show. I firmly believe that. And bless you, I, I, I'll remember. Hi, Joe. Ha <laughs> You know, I am just, I'm just a goddamn bored. Uh, Saturday night bingo. And, uh, uh, I wondered, I wondered when we get, that used to worry the hell out of me. What in the hell do you do if you don't drink? 
I don't know how the hell all you people found time to. I don't know how I found time to. Uh, give you a few ideas. You heard how it was when I was trying to find help. I went to, last year was a big year for me. In February, I went to a conference in Palm Springs for the professional people who work with the, with alcoholics and the theme of the workshop, the conference, was the family concept of the disease of alcoholism. There were 90 some people, professional people at that conference, 55 of them doctors or psychiatrists. And now they're talking about the disease concept of alcoholism, that kind of training. A helicopter landed on the pad, the Secret Service people got out, the man from the health and welfare of the United States government was one of the panelists, a former first lady, where this conference was being held, a freestanding hospital was being built on the grounds of the Eisenhower Medical Center, called the Betty Ford Wing of the Eisenhower Medical Center. This freestanding wing is for chemical dependency. Pretty exciting for a person who'd gone through what I did to go see and experience something like that. That same month, I had my 70th birthday. And that same month, a lady agreed with me that probably I didn't need to spend the rest of my life alone. And in July, we were married. And in October, I had my 35th anniversary in this beautiful fellowship. And I'm so damn busy, I barely got here from Santa Cruz, where I was working with a doctor and a psychiatrist who thinks they like would like to take certain steps. One through twelve. Yes. Hello, Johnson. Hi, buddy. I, uh, I'm open asked John, and I, I never am able to put a date to it. But it happened when I become aware of my concept of, a, of what a spiritual awakening is. I knew then what they meant, that I had a 24-hour receive depending upon my spiritual health. And that happened in my second year. I did not begin to identify myself as a recovered alcoholic until about my tenth year in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because, you see, after five years of recovery, I moved from Kansas City to Las Vegas, Nevada, where I lived the next 18 years of my life. And that, too, was patterned after the way alcoholics did back in the Midwest. And back there, no one gets up and says, my name is Dan and I'm an alcoholic. Anytime they identify themselves, it's only and always through the grace of God and the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. But normally they just don't get, only when I begin to be acquainted with California did I see people get up and always identify themselves as so-and-so, and that's when I begin saying recovered alcoholic. Yes. Well, uh, they didn't have an abuse when I uh, got here, but since I was only able to see a power greater than myself being Alcoholics Anonymous, I think that I could have seen that an abuse was a power greater than myself. But I never could have replaced God with it. It would only have been a way to get me sober enough to be able to have found a loving God. And if it does that for you or anybody else, God bless Andy.
But if, if you're going to try to live with it the rest of your life as a power greater than yourself, I doubt if you'll find the happiness and joy and freedom that maybe you're looking for. I can't give you a yes or no answer to that, but I'd like to attempt to answer it. I believe that these people had a spiritual awakening and tried to describe it. I believe these people had the ability to know what it was they wanted to say and were able to say it. I believe uh, Bill Wilson, I have heard him say many times, his hand only held the pen that wrote the word, but he did not mean, as he would oftentimes elaborate, he did not mean that he was writing the words that God gave him. He meant he was writing the words that those first hundred people in those two groups were sharing with him. He would write it, he would send it back to them, they would edit and suggest, and he would rewrite. And I think, for my own personal comfort, that God worked through those people so that I did not have to die a drinking alcoholic. And if the whole world can use it, God bless it. I may not always see your hand, though. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. okay. Dry drunk for me is insanity without having taken a drink. Complacency, I wasn't sober, but about three years when I got up before this beautiful group of loving people who took me in and gave them a lecture on it. I told those assholes what they were and how they got off, you know? <laughs> and went back in about three years and apologized to all of them. <laughs> I hope I, and I have never again made that judgment on anybody. Every one of us has to determine for ourselves how far we can go. Uh, I see a lot of people that I don't believe are happy, joyous, and free, and maybe they're complacent, but I wouldn't say so, you know? <laughs> yes, back there. <laughs> One. And I don't believe that anybody ever has to write more than that, but that, that's only what I do. But I did what I see a lot of people do that I attempt to help with. I wrote an autobiography. I indexed it. Oh, God. I did all the things. And all the while, all I needed to do was write an outline like they did in the big book, and that's what I eventually did. Uh, don't know about you, but I was one of those people that had a tendency to blow things up a little bit out of proportion to reality. Uh, I exaggerated things a little bit. I was inclined to be a perfectionist. Uh, if one was good for were better. You know, a little was good, a lot was better. Uh, and that carried over in every part of my life. But there isn't another step in the twelve that is so explicitly, so graphically made clear and plain to us in the big book as a fourth step. They even give us a working outline. And all your, all I found I was looking for was cause and effect. See, I had been raised in a very dogmatic religion where you had examination of conscience and confession and all of these things that didn't help me a damn bit. In my sobriety. But an honest, searching, fearless, moral inventory put me in touch with the first time and only time in my life of who the hell I was. 
Hello, Scott. The method I now use is pretty much the one I always use. I have a tape that runs in my mind, and I run that tape over the events of the day, and I see the whole day on that tape. And if I pray about it, I hopefully I see the mistakes I made, and I recognize uh, some of the things I did right. Uh, I again, I can't don't know all of your stories, and of course I don't know yours, but I was an obsessive compulsive person. God, if I'd ever started writing about it, I'd never get the next day started. To work <laughs> I believe, may I, may I say just a bit more about that? I believe that there are three ways to take the tenth step. And I practice two of them. I believe that it's essential. Absolutely. You see, I know what it is to be born again. I know what it is to be born again. Every day of the world, I start a new life. I can only do that if I close out a life the day before. But many times during the course of the day, if I don't want to be confused, or I don't want to hurt, or I don't want to be in a state of aggravation, I stop for just a moment. I stop and listen. I stop and feel. Have you ever gone into a room that was totally dark, and you could sense that another person or thing was in there? That's what I do when I'm back in touch with my loving God. There isn't confusion, there isn't aggravation, and there isn't frustration. I create it. I'm going to stand up here till midnight till we get a question from a female member of this fellowship. This is not a closed men's meeting. Thank you. You can't hear it again. Good for you. Susan, do you have a big book? On page 55. Let me recommend that to you. It helped me more than anything else in the world at that time. On page 55, and I'll paraphrase, they said to me that if I would think honestly and search fearlessly, the consciousness of my belief would be made known to me. Then they really said, they said, in this you cannot fail. Now they said that to a person who had considered himself a failure in everything he'd ever attempted. And up to that point, I have not found a single place, as I have not today, where those people misled or lied to me. I believe that if I could have stayed under the umbrella, under the protection of that third step, the rest of my life, because I was in the safest place that I had been since I left my mother's womb, and I mean that with all sincerity. That loving God, you know. So it was a constant doing. That's the way I got told. I was a compulsive drinker. And I sometimes didn't take a drink for the next minute. And that's the way I took the third step. You only take it once. But you can sure get out from under it if you're this kind of a guy. Knowing God is not an intellectual thing. We can know it intellectually. Uh, 
trial initially in the closet with the door closed. I mean, literally, not, you know, I mean, not literally, just in the quietness of your own You'll hear, you'll feel, and you'll know what you're saying. Yeah. Hi, Tim. I beg your pardon? I can't answer that. I can't tell you that it isn't too personal. It's because I don't say my prayers at night. Uh huh. Now I can answer that one. I say Father. Because I believe my God is my Father. And I start any prayer. Mostly my prayers are asking for things. I don't know whether you do that or not, but I start every prayer with thanking for what I have. <laughs> you know what I get through thanking? I don't have much left to ask for. Yes, sir, please. Yes, I am. See, all I have ever been, I'm sure, is that which I prayed to be, and that's an extension of my God's will and love. All I've wanted to be is a channel. And when I work hard, I sometimes am. I have not changed anyone's life, including mine. I do not believe that people change. You can make book on horses, and if you're smart enough, you may win more than you lose. But if horses made book on people, they'd have all the money in the world. You can make book on people, they never change. <laughs> but God can and will change people through prayer, and I believe that with every bit of knowledge and belief that I have. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, know, I, I, do, I do consider meditation. I would no more put my foot on the floor. It wouldn't make any difference if you had a gun in my mouth or there was an 8.2 earthquake. My foot now would not hit the floor till I had established my attunement, my contact, because I start a brand new life every morning. And my experience tells me I better start it with this energy and power that's mine through my attunement with my God. And that then leads into a period of about 20 minutes of prayer and meditation. I use transcendental meditation many times, not so much anymore, but when um, I used to work a good deal the way I drank, and uh, I find it very restorative. I find that uh, it's an excellent way for me to gain strength. If maybe I'm hearing you ask, how do I meditate? How does one meditate? Is that what I'm really hearing? Okay. Do you ever read the newspaper? Ever read a book? Ever read a sports story, a story of the sport page, and you read something about somebody that you know in this that you never saw before, and you just stop and think a minute? You contemplate, could this be so? Uh, that's the way I learned to meditate. I would take a book that was of spiritual teaching. And I would read a few sentences till I read a sentence that I wanted to think about. That's how I learned to meditate. I think contemplation leads to meditation. And that could be about girls as well as it could about God. You know? 
I have had 35 years of this fellowship, and I have never had a day that I didn't have contact with another alcoholic. Now, some of that time was traveling in Europe or the Scandinavian countries, Mexico and Central America, and oftentimes I was in countries where there wasn't much English spoken and pretty hard to find another alcoholic. But I always had I went. I could slip back to one of these stories, and I always had a contact with another alcoholic. No, I never want to forget where I came from. That's one of the reasons I'm in places like this doing what I'm doing tonight. That's why you have to hear my horror stuff. Yes. Hi, Ron. Sure. Mm -hmm. Just just start, if it's nothing more than a I have a, a dear friend who got his first sobriety on Maui, Hawaii. Parking places are hard to find there. His sponsor started him out by just paying for a place to park. You know, just break the simplest little thing. Pursuing it the whole way. Do we have any more? healing process. The healing process. Are we talking about the forgiveness? What are we talking about? Uh-huh. Whew, I found it a long time before I found it for me. See, that was the thing. My God forgive me things I couldn't forgive me for. Uh, I found in the fifth step that my loving God had forgiven me anything I had done before I had ever done it. Because who created me? Who made me? Who made it possible for me to? I don't believe he's sadistic. He isn't getting his jolly watching me suffer. But he made it possible for me to. Called free will. The one thing he gave me that he didn't give any other creature ever that he created. Man. He gave free will. Another way of saying that is that he gave you responsibility. He gave me responsibility and choice. You see, I even have a choice today of the thoughts, I think. I didn't always, oh, those sons of bitches used to attack me, and I'd believe them. That is not so. I have a choice. And it's my responsibility. He intends for me. And how well I exercise it is how happy and free I am. Yes. I have a doctor, another doctor that I'm working with right now, who insisted that I had to be his god. And I said, no way, man. You're going to lay that trip on me. But I'll loan you, my god. I was able to borrow a loving god. I'm able to loan a loving god if they want it. But you don't let the tail wag the dog. That's why you're a sponsor. <laughs> Are you asking me? Yes, I do. Go back to this question over here too. It's in my morning prayer. 
It says that uh, I would like to have the knowledge and the power to do God's will. It says that I would like to be in the right place at the right time to say and do whatever will benefit anyone and myself who might be seeking. It says that I would like to live a life that is pleasing to my God and seen through the eyes of my peers as that of a good person and the members of my fellowship as an elder statesman. That's it. Well, I spent the first 35 of my years of my life proving that I couldn't deal with it. And then I let God deal with it. But only through the knowledge that came to me in the fifth step was I able to. See, I don't know your story and I don't know about you, but I have operated on the energy of fear. And I replaced that little by little with the energy that comes from faith in God. And pride began to go. But I did learn this in the fifth step. <laughs> it was hard to apply. But whenever there was a problem, I could look every place else and then find pride, or I could look for pride first, and I generally didn't have to look any further. Yes, sir. Hi, Bryce. Fear is energy. Fear is what? How do I express fear? The, the energy of fear. You bet. Everything and anything didn't make any difference. If I wasn't afraid of something, I was afraid. What the hell was the matter? It was the only feeling I knew, eventually, that I could recognize. And out in front of fear always was anger. Only two I had to work with. When I see anger now, I know where somebody's coming from. We're not dealing with anger, we're dealing with fear. There is no such thing for a recovering or recovered alcoholic as justifiable anger. If you believe anything I told you tonight, believe that. It's too long a story to tell you now, as late as it is. Frank Sinatra has his own jet. He wants to go someplace, he goes out and gets in it. I would like to be able to do that. I can't afford it. I would like to be able to travel this whole country going nothing but AA meeting through a beautiful recreational vehicle, but I can't afford to do that. So I don't. I can't afford justifiable anger. Because he damn near killed me. <laughs> He's telling me it's time to say the Lord's Prayer. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.